What a delight, our next guest, of course, Australian captain, New South Wales captain, Lisa Stalaker. So Lisa Stalaker, former Australian, New South Wales cricket captain, it is great to have you on the SCG podcast. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Now, your story is an extraordinary one, and hopefully over the next half hour or so, we'll we'll peel it back. But I I want to start with cricket. Where did you first play cricket? Uh, Just like uh, many kids, uh, Australian kids in the backyard. Um, My father, Indian born, cricket kind of runs in your blood. It's like a religion. So Mumbai, uh, Mumbai. Yeah, yep. Um, And uh, he was never a great cricketer, but he followed it and and loved the game. And uh, I seemed to be daddy's little girl. So I followed my father and did whatever he wanted to do. And cricket was obviously one of those things. He would have told you all about the Brabant Stadium and Wankhede in Bombay. Been fortunate enough to cover a couple of games. Uh, just extraordinary places. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been nice probably um, as I've gotten older and travelled over to India as well that I've gone to places that my father would have gone to as, as a young boy. Um, and certainly cricket was integral to his uh, upbringing. And the IPL. You've had a, a great old time doing a wonderful job. But it's, it's amazing, isn't it, with all your heritage in and around India to be back there working? Yeah, the, the older I get, I think the more closer my ties are to India. Um, I've enjoyed going back regularly now since um, 2015 was the first year that I was fortunate enough to cover the IPL. And, um, you know, I'm always looking for, for chances and opportunities to go back to India because firstly, the people, as you would know, Timmy, are, are really hospitable. Uh, they make you feel so welcome. The food is amazing. I'm probably one of the few people that come back overweight from India. Everyone I says, was the same as well. <laughs> I was going to say, people say deli belly. I go, I wish. I don't get that. I mm. just literally eat everything in front of me. Uh, the shopping is amazing and the, the history that they have. Um, you know, I'm fortunate enough to, to spend a, a fair bit of time in Rajasthan and mm. uh, the palaces and the kings and the moguls and um, it really does fascinate me. Oh, the Rumbug Palace with the elephant yes. rides. It, it, is, it is the ultimate extremes for anyone listening who hasn't been to India. If you get the opportunity to go, you go and watch cricket or go be involved in some way, please do it because it's a life experience. Now, you were actually born in Pune, which is huge place when it comes to cricket Uh, most places are in India (laughs) but there are 30 odd international venues in India Pune is one Uh, tell us the story this is this is the late 1970s yeah so 79 I was born uh, in Pune Um, I'm actually adopted Um, my father obviously Indian born Um, my mother's white English born in in London Um, they were actually looking to complete their family, they had already adopted a, a young girl um, at Bangalore, Caprini, and um, so they wanted to have a little son. Uh, so they, they were living in America at the time. They came out to India. They went to Mumbai, a number of orphanages around there. They didn't quite have a connection with any of the kids, um, and family friends said, why don't you go to Pune? There's there's a few more orphanages there. Um, and they were literally on their way home thinking that nothing's quite hitting us so to speak Um, and they said look we know you're after a little boy but there's this little girl she's um, out on loan so it was a process that was done back then simply because there was too many kids in the orphanage and and not enough staff to give the love and care so of a weekend a lot of kids would kind of be farmed out to to families to look after them so I was at one of these families supposedly they went down they had a look um, my mother fell in love with my big brown eyes, and uh, I guess the rest is history. It's a beautiful story in so many ways. Uh, 
what a stroke of, of luck for you and them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, firstly, that uh, I was there at the right time, right place, so to speak. Um, you know, and I've gone back uh, with the Australian women's side to, to an orphanage. Uh, it was probably 2007. I remember going in there. And going, hang on, that that's me. I, that could have been me. And, and where could my life have been? Now, I know that having been back to my original orphanage in 2012, that a lot of kids were sent over to Sweden and, and different parts of the world. So I don't, you know, I could have still been in India. I could have been in Sweden. Who knows where I could have been. But in the end, I was fortunate enough to, to be adopted by my parents and, and live in Australia that, you know, I comfortably say is my home. Yeah, your mum fell in love with your beautiful brown eyes. Your dad, he, he, I'm wondering whether you had a cricket bat in your hand at the time. <laughs> he, you practising your because of his love of his love of cricket, and the it took you back to the United States because they they were living in the US for a while and also into Africa. Yeah, Kenya. My father was actually a missionary with the Seven Day Adventists, um, and so he was finishing off his studies in in Michigan, and then he headed the um, I think East Africa region for the Seven Day Adventists. So we we lived in Kenya for a couple of years. So um, from two to four, I was in Kenya, and we were actually on our way. So my father likes to change his career every ten years. Um, so he had already done the missionary for ten years and wanted to become a doctor. Um, so we were actually on our way. Quite a change. Yeah. A slight change uh, on our way via Australia because the rest of my family were already Australian citizens because they'd already lived in Australia for a period of time when my sister was really young and I was still travelling on an Indian passport so it's a lot easier as we all know to travel around in an Australian passport so we were kind of stopping off in Australia and we we're actually heading to the West Indies, um, Jamaica where my father was going to study. Um, story goes that you know my sister and I and my mother we kind of landed in Sydney and we kind of said maybe this is the, the place that we should call home and, and ever since we have. Did he end up doing medicine? No, he didn't, um, but he ended up doing um, sports psychology. He became a hypnotherapist. Um, he's got a doctorate in quantum physics. Like He's a freak. So, um, yeah, he didn't necessarily tick off that box, but uh, I think he certainly covered everything else. What about your mum? What about your, your link with your mum? Tragically lost her 18 years ago to breast cancer, insidious disease. But... Tell me about that bond. Uh, yeah, it um, you know it's quite funny because I I talk about my father and I being daddy's little girl, but we were both Leos, so we clashed. Like we both thought we were right with everything. We still do actually. Um, and mum was the peacekeeper within the the family. Um, you know she never worked. She just looked after the for myself and and Caprini. And I guess I was really fortunate because. I was I was training a lot and you get home from school and then all of a sudden you need mum the taxi driver to drive you around to all sorts of trainings and then obviously national championships everywhere so I spent a fair bit of time with mum on the road and um, going to cricket tournaments dad was able to come to the majority of them so I was fortunate in that sense um, but when mum um, fell fell ill and I was probably in year 10 when she was first diagnosed like most kids um, you probably try and protect yourself so I kind of pushed her away um, Luckily, I was able to rectify myself and act accordingly like a daughter should be. But I took a year off um, university and spent a year looking after my mum, learned how to cook all of the family recipes, um, you know, spent you know, a fair bit of time with her during those last couple of years. And, you know, I'm very thankful that I did. I lost my mother within the last couple of years and they say, you know, you'll get over it. I don't, <laughs> I don't believe that. I, I don't know if you do get over things like that. You find... A new normal is that is that how you felt 
Yeah, I, I certainly feel that um, that with a tragedy or an illness or something like that, it takes you probably about four or five years to kind of remember what they were like before they were sick mm. uh, because those, those memories are so raw and so real. Um, and, um, yeah, it takes you a while to remember when they were healthy and what they did. Um, you don't ever get over it. You learn to kind of live on and live through it. Um, there'll be times... Uh, that sh- you kind of just remember. You'd be out, out in, like, I could probably think of the last time I was in Mumbai and I saw this lady walk past me. I thought, that looks like mum, what she would look like now. I just burst into tears. Mm. It's just randomly, like, just by the pool of the Taj, at the Taj in Mumbai, which is a lovely place, by the way. Um, and, you know, those moments will still hit you. Yeah, and you you look back and you look at their lives, you look at their their bravery as well, don't you? I look at my mother. As a little girl from Lebanon, grew up, had six children. You look at your mother, went to a, a, an orphanage in Pune and picked you out of the crowd. Yeah, and, um, and, and lived in India as a, a white female back in the you know, uh, late 60s, early 70s, not knowing the language. Um, she was able to pick it up, obviously, spending a lot more time with my father. And, uh, but then also, I'm sure there, there were times that, you know, having two... Um, Indian-looking kids that don't look anything like her. I'm sure there was a lot of people at times looking at her, trying to figure out how does this family all connect, how does it all work. Um, yeah, but now nowadays it's the norm, which is great to see. But certainly um, there's a lot of people that kind of paved the way for it to be normal now. Even walking down the aisle, uh, <laughs> that wasn't done back in the 1960s. But the um where, tell us about where they got married and what happened. Yeah, um, yeah. so my father proposed. Um, my mother's mum wasn't that pleased. You should see the wedding photos. It's a crack up. My grandmother's not smiling Grumpy. in any of them. In the end, she did love my father. Tends to happen that way, <laughs> yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, certainly late 60s, I think they married in 68. Uh, they got married in England. Um, and there was a police guard, you know, just at the corner of the, wow. the street just to make sure that there, was, um, there wasn't going to be any issues because, you know, there wasn't too many black and, and white weddings back then. Then they travelled um, straight away. They, they travelled to India. They had a big Indian wedding. 2,000 people attended. My um, grandf- grandfather was quite high up in um, the government over in Bombay. So um, the Prime Minister attended my parents' wedding. Um, and as the people that know Indian weddings, they go on for about four or five yeah, days. Um, so there's some beautiful photos of mm. them um, in traditional Indian attire. And, uh, uh, yeah, so they, they had the best of both worlds in that sense. The white horse and the whole celebration. An Indian wedding is quite extraordinary. Now, what about your cricket? So whereabouts in Australia did you grow up? Where, where, did, where, did, you, where did you guys arrive when you came from overseas? Yeah, we, we, we uh, moved straight to Newcastle, mm. um, stayed there until I probably went into primary school and then we actually relocated down to Sydney. Um, so grew up in Cherrybrook uh, yeah. on Apple Tree Drive. It was a very fruity um, a beautiful ad- address. Northwest. Yeah, beautiful northwest and... Um, went to Cherrybrook Primary School and Cherrybrook Tech and Barker College, but um, got my first opportunity to kind of play cricket when I saw kids, kids actually playing um, regularly on the weekend, saying, "Dad, I want to kind of play." Uh, he said, "Well, they're all boys." I said, "Are they?" <laughs> I haven't noticed. They're just kids, aren't they? And he goes, "No, I don't think girls play cricket." 
And so he inquired at the local club at West Pennant Hills, Cherry Brook, and um, they said, well, she'll be the only girl in the whole club of like 600. It's um, a massive club. Yeah, I think it's, it's the biggest club it in It is Sydney. one of the biggest, yeah. Um, and uh, they, my dad said, yeah, no, she'll be fine. <laughs> so off I rock up to, to the first training session in under 10s as a nine-year-old kid and get in the car and I... I we get get there and I have a look at all the kids mucking around in the nets. I was like, no, Dad, I don't think so. I think I'm out. And he goes, no, 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 you'll be fine. And thankfully, you know, um, I had guys that um, I played all of my junior boys cricket with for six years. And actually, I, I think two summers ago, um, I met the captain of their side, Todd Twining, and um, he had his his two kids that, that were ball kids. Um, and, you know, the that do the flags and everything mm. for the test matches and one day games so um it was great to meet up with him after such a long period of time but my first actual memory of cricket which i loved we used to come as a family and a family that we um got on really well with in newcastle they'd come down and we'd go and see one day international cricket so we'd go uh into either the barongal or the, the bradman stand and i remember i liked the barongal because back then there was kind of the hill still there mm. so i enjoyed watching everyone getting kicked out by the police um, and all the ruckus that used to happen under that scoreboard over there. So uh, that was my first memory. I used to, we used to steal my mother's, you know, older bed sheets and paint signs and uh, get the flags going and, and make sure that I had my green and gold a kit that I wore exactly the same as my, my best friend as well. So, um, you know, I had some great memories here at the SCG. When you started uh, belting them through the covers, uh, as <laughs> took a, a while. Well, when you did, I'm sure you scored some runs. And were you bowling your off spinners back then or not? Always a spinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if if they said she's little, maybe we'll make her a spinner. They would have they would have taken you pretty seriously when you started to to perform. Yeah, like it. You know, I look now at, at the fact that I was playing boys cricket and I didn't actually realise until I was probably about 12 or 13 that women's cricket existed because back then it wasn't seen on TV. There was no real articles. It was the true supporters, the families, the fa- you know, the players' friends that knew about women's cricket. Um, thankfully, actually, our secretary... Uh, Ross Anderson was dating an Australian cricketer at the time, Denise Annette, who they later on married and had kids. But um, that's how I found out that women's cricket existed, that there was a club, Gordon Women's Cricket Club. Lisa, off you go at the age of 13. So I was playing boys cricket in the morning, women's cricket in the afternoon. And, and probably about, it took about two or three years till I kind of got on the radar of rep sides and things like that. But I loved my cricket. But tennis was actually my first real oh, love. Really? Yeah, I wanted to. I had posters of Steffi Graf and uh, Stefan Edberg and Boris Becker on my on my walls, and that was the f- sport that I was playing probably more seriously. And cricket was my fun. It was a team team sport. But then obviously things got a bit more serious with cricket, and I found tennis um, quite challenging at times and quite lonely as well as a sport. It's interesting how a lot of you elite athletes have that choice moment like with Elise with her and her football mm-hmm. and, and others the a thousand wickets well a thousand runs a hundred wickets you were the first to do it in one day international cricket in women's cricket your parents must have been very proud of you yeah they were and I was like I've said I, I was fortunate enough that they traveled around to, to most of the games obviously once I started getting into the Australian team regularly they couldn't travel all the time but um, you know they 
they saw all, all the hard work. And, and to be honest, it, you know, my mother would push me. There were times that um, there was a time that I couldn't get into the Australian team. And fitness was certainly an element of that. And I remember my mother kind of every morning, Lisa, out you go, like kick me out of the house and off you go and do your fitness. And, and um, she would have been through going through her illness at that time. Uh, yeah, know, yeah. She, yeah, she would have. So mm. she, she kind of, um, she, she helped me and, and my father, obviously being a sports psychologist, mm. that really helped. Um, you know, there were times that I, I spent with him trying to come up with plans and uh, mental uh, rehearsal, visualisation, things like that. So I, I was fortunate enough that I had the probably the best of both worlds. I had the caring mum to kind of feed me, look after me, um, make sure my clothes are all done. And, um, and then I had my father who challenged and pushed me and gave me some tools to be able to cope. Um, yeah, and, and obviously I'm fortunate enough of late to, to get some some individual accolades and it's kind of nice to share that with my father. Mm. The... The time that you came through in cricket, it was just sort of in the midst, in the back of a career like Belinda Clark's and Lisa and others who were, who were great cricketers. But you were such trailblazers. For like here, you were playing with boys for six years and then got into Gordon. Um, it was a, it was a it was a time where the flower hadn't quite opened for women's cricket. Yeah, there was still. I guess you know we can look back now and go, wow, okay, look how far the game has come. But certainly for me, I was fortunate enough. I was probably. Uh, represented New South Wales at a junior age and we had to pay to play for you know well actually our parents had to pay Mm. um, to to play for junior state sides but when I got into the Australian teams I I was lucky enough to be one of the first batches of of players to not have to raise money to represent my country so I look back at at that stage in in women's cricket and and we were very fortunate the likes of Belinda Clark, Lisa Kitely, Catherine Fitzpatrick, Karen Rowland, all of those names who I was fortunate enough to play, you know, probably four or five years with, they had to do it really tough. And vice versa, they did it a lot easier than the previous generation. So everyone's played their role. Um, but certainly it was probably then and there that things started to change because we started to see, I think, um, I think 99, there was a final here that was played, a, a Women's National League final against... Um, the Western Fury and, and the New South Wales Breakers and uh, it was televised on, I think, Channel 7 or, no, sorry, um, Optus Optus Sports or something. Yeah, there that would have been the early days. Yeah. yeah, so that was probably the first kind of opportunities that we had to get the game out there a little bit more frequently than it had been in the past. And um, so once people start to see what the female players can do and there was a bit more coverage then all of a sudden um, things increase and then you know we look back to we talk about the bushfire appeal game that's happening here on the 8th of Feb I talk about and there's been a a hell of a lot of talk about Zoe Goss and bowling Mm. Brian Lara out here and you know those type of moments really change um, where the women's game is seen. But you missed the golden egg didn't you it's all these little (laughs) they're great mates of yours I know they are Lisa Healy and Elise Perry yeah. um, appearing in supermarkets and advertisements <laughs> and commercials and yep. and the cash flow. Yes, the cash flow, the business Do you ever class have fights, a crack at them? the 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 single rooms. I mean, the list goes on. Do they and shout on. at dinner? <laughs> They do, they do actually. They, they look after us old pioneers as we struggle through life. But look, um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough at the time I was part of the Australian Cricketers Association to help with that, that landmark event of the, the MOU mm. where the women came under the same umbrella. And, um, you know, the girls are getting paid what they should. You know, they're getting the same 
more more importantly the environment that they are in is the same and, and similar to what the men's environment is and um and no surprise because the females can dedicate a lot more time to their game we're seeing some some really exciting cricket um People ask me, you know, am I bitter or twisted because I, I missed it by that much. Literally, I retired in 2013 and that next summer they brought in contracts mm. <laughs> and then they just kept jumping up. But fingers crossed, I, I'm in my next part of my career in commentary and uh, I hope that it lasts a little bit longer than my playing career and then I'll be okay. Oh, absolutely. And you do a great <laughs> job in commentary. The, the women's game now has got to a level... It's extraordinary, really. Not extraordinary if you love the game of cricket and you've seen it. Yeah. But for those that are, are fresh eyes on it, it, it's growing quickly. And to think that we've got a double header here at the SCG, it's, they say it's going to be the biggest women's sport event in Sydney since Cathy Freeman ran 20 years ago. It's going to be huge. Yeah, it's going to be massive. Um, and, and the fact that... Uh, and there's no surprise that once, once women's cricket became a regular fixture on free-to-air TV... Um, people were quite happy to kind of flick through the TV and then they go, oh, let, let me just have a look at this. Oh, let's just see what the girls can do. And, and to be honest, a lot of our games go right down to the wire. There's not too many blowouts. Mm. I mean, um, the fact that Australia played India just recently and India only scored, I think, 103. Australia chased it down with one over to go because the wicket was turning and they've got India's got about five spinners. So, yeah. um, you know, games go down to the wire. Uh, but... The, the T20 World Cup that is cu- coming to Australian shores uh, very shortly. Mm. Semi-finals will be played here. The doubleheader that you're talking about will certainly be massive. And um, uh, we're seeing, because of the growth of the women's game, um, the WBBL has played a role in in increasing the standard around not only our domestic circles, but also internationally, that we're not looking at one or two teams potentially uh, tearaways. We're looking at probably four to five teams that could, on any given day, win against the top five teams. So that makes an, it an exciting contest. I don't know whether your dad had started his sports psychology by the time you started playing cricket for Australia, but did he ever try to get inside your head and say, well, you do have an Indian passport? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, things were going along nicely. I didn't have too many roadblocks in my way. Um, and the roadblocks that were there were things that I could address mm. myself. Um, certainly, uh, I, you know, whilst people say if they were to look back on me and, and maybe past players would say I, I played like an Indian, I was very wristy, I played very square of the wicket, but all of my coaching, all of my upbringing in cricket was here in Australia. Um, and the amount of um, pride there is when you get your baggy green and when mm. you represent your country and you know being brought up in this country and seeing what it means to players to represent their country. I wouldn't want to play for any other country. Yes, I probably could have played. I could have played for England or India, yeah, really. Wow. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm very happy that um, I, I stayed here in this country and got that cha- got that chance. I know Elisa Healy wanted to be a marine biologist when she grew up. She had She's put- still trying to finish that degree she <laughs> yeah. is. Holy she was working smokes. at KFC when I first met her, wanting to be a marine <laughs> biologist. What did you want to do when you... When you- when you grew up, so to speak? Yeah, well, like I said, I was daddy's little girl. So I actually studied psychology at okay. Sydney Uni. Um, and then I, obviously because of my mother, um, I went through bereavement counselling mm. and I found that extremely helpful. So I was kind of thinking along the lines of potentially going into that. Um, but I got a job soon after I finished uni. Um, mum had just passed away. 
I was still living with dad. He wasn't in a great place. So financially, I kind of needed to, to pick up the pieces. And Cricket New South Wales gave me a, a role here as a, a game development officer. And I guess I stayed in that organisation for about 15 years until I just... I, I, I left about six years ago. So um, I got involved in, in high-performance coaching from there on. I've done my level three. I saw Elise Perry and Elisa Healy when they were about 12, 13 years of age and got a chance to coach them in the junior state sides and um, certainly saw you know a wonderful group of young players come through the New South Wales ranks that went on to play for Australia. And I got a chance to play with them, not only at New South Wales and Australia, but they became some of my best mates Um but then I wanted a new challenge when I retired. Um, I'd already been doing a full-time job as well as representing my country and state. Um, and at that time, there weren't females commentating the cricket. And I was like, hang on, us females, we have an opinion too about this Absolutely. game. Um, you know, and I was an avid follower of it. And I'm like, why, why can't I hear female voices? So um, I remember hanging around the Channel 9 um, commentary box like a bad smell a, a lot of the time Well, at the back end of my career. Um, and so I'd... I left Cricket New South Wales not having any any work available um, and just started to pick up bits and pieces. It's amazing when you're finally free. Everyone goes, oh, now that you're free, can you do this, 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 and this? It's like a whole new world opened up. And now, thankfully, touch wood, you know, I can call commentary my full-time career and, and get to do some amazing things. Give us a little bit of insight because we, we hear your dulcet tones. But, uh, it's, <laughs> I don't it's, know about dulcet, oh, but anyway. mellifluous tones. <laughs> but it's global. Now you have to give us a bit of an insight into that. Yeah, yeah I, I guess my first opportunity was with was with ABC Grandstand at the back end of my career. Mm. Um, started to call a, a bit of T20 cricket. Um, uh, actually, my first actual first chance was 2010 it's the ACA All-Stars versus the Australian team and I was sitting between Tony Gregg and Mark Nicholas I had five overs it was the game where Tim Payne actually broke his oh, finger in it um, and it sent his career going spirally downwards but I did five overs and I thought this is pretty cool I needed how do I get this gig um, so I, uh, yeah ABC then obviously when I retired I did some of the women's international games with Channel 9 and then my first real opportunity was the IPL in 2015, which was an absolute, um, it was my 10-year plan, to be honest, that I was trying to build my way up to something like that. Mm. Never in my wildest dreams did I think it was going to be the first one that I would do. And I remember going to Eden Gardens uh, in Kolkata, 70,000 fans screaming. I had to interview Gotham Gambia on the grounds. And for those that know him, he speaks quietly and quickly. So I couldn't even hear him in my ear and I didn't know what he was saying, but he stopped and I was like, okay, I'll ask the next question. And then I was like, I, I didn't know what I was doing, but I had Danny Morrison, for those that know um, great guy. cricket. Yeah, he's a great guy, but he's a, he's a mad cat, both on the mic and off the mic. And Pommy Mbangwa, who's um, a former Zimbabwean player, mm. but works in South Africa. So polar opposites from a commentary point of view. I've got loud almost theatrical kind of commentary and this very opinionated thoughtful and I was like I don't know what do I do who 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 should I be and it's probably taken me a few years to figure out what is my personality behind the mic and what do I offer the viewers you can only be yourself can't you because yeah but you got it takes takes a while to figure mm. out because 
we kind of mimic, even from a young age as kids, we mimic what we see. So what I've heard over the years of commentary, I thought I had to do that. And mm. it does take a while to figure out who you are. Yeah, it's great when you do. Do you, do you, do you as we wrap it up, do you, do you ever reflect sometimes when you're travelling around on the, the IPL circus about how it all began for you? How, you know, like in that little orphanage all yeah. those years ago? Yeah, and, and I try to certainly whilst I'm in India and, and obviously India quite happily claim me every now and again as well. So, uh, you know, I'm happy to share my story and it's certainly a positive one, but I do find myself every now and again pinching myself going, imagine what my life would be if I went down a different path. But I have been very fortunate and very blessed to, to be given the opportunities that I have not only um, from a professional point of view, but more so from a, a personal point of view. Well, thank God from Australia's perspective that your <laughs> mum and dad walked in there that day. Yes. Good to talk to you, Lisa. Thanks, Timmy.